And the woundedness gets healed both psychologically, but also through spiritual practice, through God consciousness entering you. And then you feel like something larger than yourself is holding you and helping you and giving you love. Hi, everyone. It's Raghu, and I'm back with Mind Rolling. And uh, my guest today is Judith Ragir. Is that how she pronounce Ragir. it? Ragir. That's oh. correct. Ragir. Yeah, she has a wonderful book called Untangling Karma that we're going to get into a little bit. But uh, I do, you know what? I want to say that. So, this book, everybody, uh, to say it is an honest rendering of a life is a wild understatement. I mean, the level of honesty uh, about everything that you've gone through uh, is is pretty extraordinary. And it does remind me a little bit of uh, of Ramdas, how he was so transparent in, in his story, certainly uh, in the early days. And uh, so, Judith, I think, we have some real parallels. Okay, so I grew up with a a, a, fa- a dominant father, uh, uh, basically dominant was really a wild understatement. It's funny because in the book you say <laughs> you know, your father would act out at the dinner table, slamming and, and really getting after your, your two brothers. Because I had the same thing. We, we were two brothers and one, uh, my younger sister. And I got, oh. the, I got the brunt of it big oh. time, you know. I'm and sorry. Yeah. It all got um, comp- pretty completely transformed. I was very fortunate in that, um, this is me going on here. As, That's okay. I'm you interested. You're Okay. He was an Air Force uh, pilot. He, he, we're Canadian, so I come from Montreal. And he was uh, assigned to the um, British Royal Air Force and flew these bombers in the, in the Second World War. To say he had PTSD would be also another understatement. And he... It was so bad, and he acted out so badly with his family. And I was the oldest one, so it was natural that I got that brunt. And he, uh, a tyrant of enormous sort, and he, uh, he was so confused that uh, he thought he wasn't afraid to die. Okay, he was so disconnected with both being human and, of course, anything beyond uh, any other reality beyond that. It was it was just uh, tragic, really, and it was tragic because of what got passed on. And in this book, you talk about how, uh, and you'll talk about it now as well, in terms of being passing down karma that gets passed down through generations. Anyhow, just the the long and the short of it is, he actually came to India when I was with Ram Dass and Neem Karoli Bama, my brother and I, and he came there saying, I just, I want to see how my sons were doing. So it wasn't like he didn't love us. He just couldn't stop the acting out out of, out of this terrible trauma that he had. Mm-hmm. But he came there, and yeah. and and in the the first meeting he had with uh, Neem Karoli Baba, Neem Karoli Baba turned to me and said, amongst other things, like telling him exactly what had happened on his way, details that nobody could possibly know, you know, and just blew my father's um, mind. But then he turned to me and said, "Did you give him the med- did your father the medicine?" I said, "Yeah, he had a cold. I gave him some aspirin, and so on." He said, no, night, the yogi medicine that Ramdas gave me. I went, acid, <laughs> my father? And my <laughs> father went, LSD? <laughs> he said, 
<laughs> meet me in two weeks, take care of him. And sure enough, I found a hit of acid. My father took it, had a death trip from here to forever in Benares, where people go to die on the banks of the Ganges. <laughs> you know. Oh, what an extraordinary story. And it shattered him completely. And then uh, Neem Karoli Baba did others told my father other stuff like details about a horse that he had saved on a on a horse farm that he had in Quebec and at that point my father just fell apart on the floor that was the end of him in terms of believing this story that he had been telling himself living this trauma that he had been living for all of these years and from then on we had a relationship so that uh, is really an amazing story. And I got reminded of that when you told your story. So tell your story of growing up and what made you uh, realize, wait, there is something else here other than the uh, ego that and the story I'm telling myself mm -hmm. and my family history. Well, let's see what to say. So. Um, you know, in some ways, it's n until now that I've been holding that story. Mm. Uh, little by little over my life, it softened and softened and fell away. But really writing the book and talking about the book has really completed mm. some kind of releasing of that story. And really important for me is forgiveness um learning how to uh take very good care of my manifest body and my emotional body really caring for it which i think sometimes is skipped in uh spiritual practice we kind of want to skip over that part of how much trauma we have or how much desperate we feel or how much our ego is screaming out but not skipping over that is what the book was largely about entering into what i'm calling descending spirituality where you go into your karma and untangle it or soften it or bring spiritual qualities to it and also ascending which means um Becoming familiar with, accessible to you, your higher sense of consciousness. And those two coming together has really integrated and made me able to feel much, much more free. What I've always wanted, I'm kind of now feeling because of bringing, uh, you know, I studied Zen for 50 years. I've done a lot of sitting in the Zen style. And so my consciousness is pretty open. My heart was pretty open by all that. But integrating it with my story was much more complicated. <laughs> and that's the what I try to address in the book. I have a beautiful quote from Titnat Han. Can I read it? Yeah. Because it's about this topic. The fruit of looking deeply is understanding the many causes and conditions, primary and secondary, that have brought about our anger and suffering. We reflect like this until we have some insight into what has caused our suffering. And with this insight, we know what to do and what not to do to change the situation. Mm. So that's really the exploring, going into our stories, as painful as that is. So one thing is meditation teaches you how to sit with your pain, and then to be able to actually digest or regulate the past emotionally in your emotional body, and also be able to hold it Buddha's arms hold it with your higher self so that you have both of them working together. Mm. Does that make sense to yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to hear, though, just some some of the 
and which you express in the book and you write about your mm-hmm. life and your life growing up. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the well, real world that you lived in? That uh, Well, in- I'll talk about the dinner table since you mentioned the dinner <laughs> table. Uh, we had a formal dinner. We always had a live-in maid, usually of African-American descent. Um, and she would serve on silver platters our meal. Mm. And my dad would have vitriolic anger that he would express at the table almost every night, mostly directed at my eldest brother, who Me. thankfully, yeah, thankfully survived mm. uh, with difficulty, my eldest brother. And sometimes my second brother would get it. And what I would do as the youngest girl, the only girl, I would stuff my food into my mouth so that I would suppress my feelings, which was part of the cause of my food problems in my life. And then I actually would go under the table, hide under the table. Nobody kind of cared because I was the youngest, which is kind of a repeating story. Um, And I would avoid my father's, what I used to call machine gun. It was like a machine gun at my eldest brother. Mm. Um, The house was very dark, a very dark house. I never brought people over, no friends or anything, because the house was too icky, um, mm. too much rage in the house. And my grandmother died in the house, and she was a very volatile woman. And you could kind of hear her moaning in the downstairs bedroom. <laughs> And there was no sexual protection for me. Uh, they didn't know about that, I, I don't think. That's where a lot of my forgiveness comes. They just didn't have the tools, my mom and dad, to handle what the life was presenting them. So there was a sexual abuse for me, mm. which was very, well, as I say in the book, it's a lifetime recovery. You know, uh, the Me Too movement, I wrote this chapter before the Me Too movement. But when that exploded, I was, of course, happy. Like, well, at least you could talk about it and people might listen. And even maybe the perpetrator might have some consequences. But what the Me Too movement and what our culture right now, we're not even talking about how long it takes to recover. What it takes to get your body back, to let yourself be sensual, to let your erotic zones open up. All of those things took me, I have to say, decades. Mm. First, to be open about it. Second, to um, start to recover and then to really have a full sexual life with my husband. Um That was interesting. I've been giving a lot of talk. And one woman said to me after the question and answer, she said, I'm so glad you talked about your husband because the partner of someone who's been abused also has to deal with it. Mm. They have to be Mm. patient. They have to go through the ins and outs of uh, what triggers their partner it's a big deal, and not very many people write about it. So I wrote about it uh, kind of frankly, not kind of, very frankly. Very. Because I felt that that might help someone else mm-hmm. realize that it's not unusual that you have to work very, very hard. I hate the word work, but I don't know what else to say. That you have to pay attention to the woundedness a lot for it to get healed. Mm. And the woundedness gets healed both psychologically, but also through spiritual practice, through God consciousness entering you. 
And then you feel like something larger than yourself is holding you and helping you and giving you love and you can heal. Mm. Is that enough or you want yeah, more? No, that's, no, that's good. But uh, I'm assuming that this kind of trauma, I know it happened and that's what happened to me. I, it drove me to look for something outside of this conditioning that happened through mm-hmm. family, through teachers, school, society in general. Uh, I could say that I was a little bit saved by Bob Dylan back in that day because, <laughs> oh, yeah, right. So I'm not the only one thinking this is bullshit. And uh, music was a big Well, thing. I and, listened to, I read Be Here Now when it came out. Oh, yeah, right. There <laughs> and you go. I listened to Alan Watts on the mm. radio. Mm. In high school, I was in high school, and I think my entrance into then uh, was my searching for, actually, I think I needed to get out of the violence and loudness of the world of my family. Mm. And I went to this place, and it was so quiet, and it was also non-relational. You know, at a Zen place, you go and you sit down and yeah. you leave, and maybe you don't haven't talked to anyone. Mm. And so I write in the book. The book is also a, a, I could say, a feminist critique of Buddhism in America, mm. and mm. that's one of the points that was not helpful for me. Sometimes you enter Buddhist practice for the wrong reasons, and I think I did in some ways. I so much wanted to be quiet. I so much wanted to be non-relational. And I picked a uh, sect that did that, mm. accommodated me, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Of course, I've gotten a million wonderful things from my practice. But there's always a shadow to your practice that I think it's very interesting to look at. Yeah. Like, yeah. why did I pick Zen? It was very controlled. It was non-relational. And that fit my trauma uh, psych- psyche. Mm. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, no, amazing. Yeah, no, absolutely. One of, one of the interesting things uh, that you talked about was when we're talking about PTSD. And really, this kind of trauma it is PTSD. And how you you say it can actually change our DNA and our chromosomes. Um, So here, I'll just quote you. In Buddhism, we call it karma, which is accumulated lifetime after lifetime. Our karma resides in our bodies like knots of emotional, physical, and psychic energy, which I found out clearly when I started doing Vipassana meditation in India way back in that day, and uh, how how those knots, they're very painful physically expressing these deep wounds, you know. We entangle these knots by intimately exploring the conditions that made them, and then by spending time in deep meditation, allowing them to be metabolized and hopefully discharged. Again, a lifetime of work. If we can break the habits and patterns of inherited karma, seven generations before us and seven generations after us will feel the release of this karma. That That's a very intense uh, 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 sentence right there. The frozen places within ourselves, which are the effect of collective trauma, can begin to melt. This belief has given me some hope, you say. And I I think this is so absolutely right on. And it I I feel again, I told this story of how my father was basically dynamited so that he you know, Neem Karoli Baba sped this process up by decades. Decades. Or lifetimes. Or lifetimes. God only knows. Right. And I, I look back, and as I'm reading this, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking, wow, talk about grace, um, because it was really bad, you know. And uh, yours may have taken a little bit longer, 
whatever the path is that you needed to to tread upon, uh, but uh, the same result, I am assuming. Well, you know, I say it took a long, long time. I bet I've been doing Buddhism for 50 years, and it's onion skins of recovery, mm. right? Layers of recovery. And I was a Buddhist teacher for 20 years. Uh, I didn't show my trauma that much when I was teaching. But it was interesting when they people started calling me a Roshi. <laughs> I, I would go home and say, is this the way a Roshi feels? I still have so much anxiety. And um, then I realized my personal stories I had released. But what I got down to was Jewish intergenerational trauma. And that's when I really started exploring World War II and those the things before me that were given to me through generational trauma. And I, I started studying this and the the I don't know who studies chromosomes, biologists. Yeah. Anyway, they write they're writing now that the Helmars, which are the caps of the chromosomes, actually lengthen when you have post-traumatic stress, and it can come down through your DNA. And I feel like, oh, yeah, the science. Padre Roshi used to have a joke when we were sitting quietly in the Zendo. One day he yelled at us, the scientists are catching up to us. You have to sit deeply. <laughs> because he he was talking about quantum physicists mm. and these people who are now scientifically saying there is such a thing as lifetime after lifetime affecting you. Mm. Yeah. That's a very powerful um, process, and I would uh, my own knowledge of it is uh, I didn't have so I was brought up in a Jewish family as well. And but my antecedents did not got out of Germany and that whole area before uh, Hitler really got going, and so then suddenly we were faced with being quote unquote cultural Jews, you know, and. One day, in, and this came to light for me specifically in India with a mentor uh, of, of ours, uh, a teacher who was very close to Neem Karoli Baba and who had um, extraordinary um, absorption uh, ability. He went into deep samadhi states in front of us. So one, and just anywhere, he would get inspired and he'd be gone. I mean, it was an amazing thing. So I once took my mother on a pilgrimage to India, right? And she, we ended up, this particular man, whose name is K.C. Tiwari, we just did a film about him, that's uh, unbelievable actually, called Brilliant Disguise. We went with him and we, one night, we were just in a guest house and he looked at us and he said, you know, you can't just give up your religion and adopt an Eastern religion. It's okay to mingle and, you know, of course, all of that. And then he said, can you, can you uh, say a prayer or sing a chant, a prayer? I'd like to hear a prayer in, in Hebrew from your tradition. So guess what? My mother and I ain't Kelohena figured that was great. There's nothing but the one, right? And his beautiful melody, and we're singing. We look over there. He's gone. And my mother had never experienced this before. No pulse, no breath. Okay? Oh, the, wow. the real deal, which I was more used to, if you can call it that. And I, she said, oh, my God. I said, no, no, he'll come back. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, and he did. And we talked about um, that aspect of especially us hippies back in the day right adopting eastern religion 
and throwing out whatever it is we had, whether it was Christian or, or Jewish. And uh, it, it, it was, we were so put upon back then that it was impossible to embrace, uh, I felt. And, and, and that was a reality. And I love in this book where you talk about this a lot. Talk about it a little I bit. I do. Yeah. So my relationship with Judaism runs through the whole book because it's my relationship with my parents. It's internalized anti-Semitism. So what That's I interesting. want. Yeah. That? It's like, well, I think one thing I want to say is I talk about being Jewish a lot in the book, uh, but I actually did it because I think oppressed people have similar reactions. So I thought if I went deeply into Jewish oppression and how that affected me, it would help everybody, African-Americans, all in uh, indigenous people, people who are experiencing oppression. We're Although we're different, we're also quite similar mm. in the way it affects us. And one of the ways is that you start to hate yourself. The world is hating you, and you begin to believe it, especially if it happens to you as a child, which usually it does. So my self-hatred and assimilation in the 50s, Jews really wanted to assimilate. Uh, and because we're white-skinned, we could kind of do it, kind of like cultural Jews, as you're talking about. But you lose so much when you assimilate. You lose your uh, ties to your history. You lose the emotions of your uh, community. You lose a lot when you assimilate. And even though I'm still not a practicing Jew, even after writing the whole book, but for the first time, I don't hate myself for being Jewish. Mm. In fact, I love myself and I love my culture, even though we have our shadow. But every culture has a shadow. The Japanese have a shadow, which I talk about. So um, so it was very important. You know, a lot of my life, I tried to hide. I wouldn't tell people I was Jewish. I married a Goyim, a German goy. Um, I, but you can't hide. I have Jewish, you know, aphorisms. You know, I use my hands. So all of a sudden with this book, I feel like I'm not hiding anymore. Mm. I'm not hiding that uh, class. I talk a little bit about being from the owning class. I'm not hiding that I'm Jewish. I'm not hiding that I've been an abuse survivor. And that not hiding has brought me such freedom to love myself as who I am. Mm. So mm. did that answer yeah. you? Yes, yeah. You know, uh, I think you know who Norman Fisher is. Yeah, I'm friends with Norman. You're friends with Norman? He's certainly one of the great teachers that we have in this country, as far as I'm concerned. I've done a couple of podcasts with him. I do it just, it's for me I do it, you know. I'm not doing it because <laughs> i got to do podcasts. Uh, That's cute. He has integrated being Jewish and Zen practice, uh, in a, uh, I don't, I can't think, well, Bernie Glassman, who you, obviously you mm. went, uh, I know you went to the, to the camps and we'll want you to just talk about that for a second. Uh, he has done it as well. Uh, incredible, incredible man, a good friend of Ram Dass's. And, um, I'm, I'm, just looking at all of that myself now at this late date. I know. know. And mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, something, you know, Ram Dass was trying to take a look at it too. 
towards yes he did a lot of exploration in well, the middle close, of his yeah, life yeah in the middle he was close to shlomo karlbach and, and a couple of yeah. the other rabbis and uh so again this is something else that stimulated my thought patterns around this subject and uh so well when i realized that i had cleaned up my personal karma but this anxiety I was feeling was Jewish oppression. Mm. Then I started to explore World War II. Mm. And I went with Bernie to Auschwitz-Birkenau. And that was, I mean, I cried. It's a seven-day retreat. And for five days, I totally, mm. I was taken apart and just cried. There, I wrote in the book about holding this tiny Torah on my heart during one of the um oh at the crematoriums we would do the jewish memorial service mm, mm. with this little tiny torah and i asked if i could hold it which I, was really a big deal for me and i just cried because i felt i had betrayed my people mm. here i was off being a buddhist getting accolades as a Buddhist teacher, and all these people had died for Judaism, for being a Jew. I thought I would never recover from that mm. at that moment. Of course, now I understand that love and forgiveness can recover everything mm. if it's very coming from on high. So that would be a Jewish way of saying it. But mm. A Buddhist way of saying it would be my higher consciousnesses have unconditional love that I can tap into, and that love can heal anything. But that was going to Auschwitz. And then, five years later or so, I had the opportunity to go to Hiroshima Nagasaki. Uh -huh. about World War II. Yeah. It was the 60th anniversary of the nuclear bombs. So when I went to Birkenau, I was the victim. When I went to Hiroshima Nagasaki, I was the perpetrator. And this whole idea of victim-perpetrator, this was very big with Bernie Glassman. It was one of his major teachings I got from him, is that duality spins around each other. So you're, you have both a victim and a perpetrator inside you. And so does everybody else. Mm. And you have to deal with that. You have to learn the compassion for both sides. Um, and when I went to Hiroshima, I had that wonderful passage about identities. I wonder if I should read it. Yeah, please. Uh, please. You know, in Buddhism, they talk about no self. No centralized self. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is true, you know. And if you go there before you've healed your emotional body, then you skip the karma that in your life. Someone said something to me. Oh, actually, a rabbi. Uh, right now, one of the, I do two Jewish things. I do Friday <laughs> night Shabbat. Mm -hmm. With my husband, we've done it for years. It's a beautiful little, you know, it takes 10 minutes to write the candles. and But we do it every Friday night. And I have my spiritual director as a rabbi, my girlfriend, who became a rabbi. And she said to me today uh, about my healing, I feel so like I'm in a new part of my life after writing the book and talking about the book. She said, well... You came here to heal a certain story of karma, and I think you've done it. And very few, not that many people can actually say that. And thank God, you now have maybe a decade more. I don't know how long I have, but I can live that without that karma on my back. Mm -hmm. wow. So in some ways, for the first time, this is so poignant to me. I feel what I've been trying to get, this freedom mm. from my story. So now I can be in the here and now. 
<laughs> I was thinking that you can you're be from here, now, here now. now. <laughs> yeah, but that's very hard to do if your life has the veneer of all your woundedness, your pain, your karma. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So I was going to read this identity yes, thing. Yes, please. If uh, let me see if I can find it. Uh, layers of identity. So. You know, I always thought, and in many ways I did find no centralized self or interdependence, deep interdependence on the cushion sitting. So you go into states and you feel the interdependence of the world. But the place where I felt the most liberated was off the cushion when I was in Hiroshima and realize the transparency of all my identities. Do you get there's no solid identity? And this is the paragraph about that. Standing and sweating in extremely hot weather in Hiroshima on August 9th, 2005, the day of the 60th anniversary of the United States nuclear bombing, I saw through to the bottom of any sense I had of a conditioned, solid, one-identity self in utter amazement. There were so many identities within me interchanging. There I was, dressed in traditional Japanese clothes as a Zen monk with my head shades. I was an American, Jewish, female, feminist, dressed in traditional Japanese clothes and bald. <laughs> Being bald was deeply emotionally emblematic for me. On the one hand, I felt like I was masquerading as a man. And layered on top of that, I felt like a Jewish woman entering a gas chamber, a breast cancer survivor, or a Zen priest letting go of her attachments. The complexity and superimposition of these images triggered my sense of the unraveling of my identity. Who was I? These multidimensional references left me totally baffled. I was standing in the spot where my country had committed the worst atrocity of war, nuclear, mass, and civic destruction. I was standing there for peace. However, in many people's eyes, I was still the enemy. Mm. Yeah. Do you kind of get that confluence of yeah. letting go of your identities and how that relates to letting loose of a solid self? Yeah. I mean, that's a good example of it. And, uh, of course, getting into the expression that Buddhist that Buddha used about there is no solid I. It's it's really a makeup of all of our different identities as you just uh, recounted. And then on the other side, the Hindus, there is a soul, and what that is uh, in my mind. And we used to talk about this all the time. Because well, it's uh, been debated for thousands of years. Yeah, right, right. But it, but I like what happened with us in in these retreats that we did and uh, that we still do. Just finished one in Maui uh, with Ramdas when he was there. All of them had an element of a Buddhist teacher. If it was Roshi Joan Halifax, it was Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg. All oh. every one of them had this uh, component to it. Because it really is emblematic of our legacy from Ninko Olibama, which is discriminating wisdom mixed with bhakti, with heartfulness, shall we say. Yeah. And then so, but we'd have fun with it because the expression of no soul, of no individual I in, 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 in Buddhist um, canon. And then, so Ramdas would start talking and he'd say something about, uh, soul land. He used to love talking about soul land, right? Mm. And then he'd look over at whoever the Buddhist teacher happened to be there and he'd go, sorry about that. <laughs> and they'd laugh. 
ultimately, um, these people had gone beyond the dogma of no soul or soul. And there was the reality, there can only be one thing going on, which is the thing we got from Maharaj, from Neem Karoli Baba, as soon as we got in front of him, he'd say in Hindi, Sabek, there's only one thing going on. All of these, Buddha, Krishna, Ram, Moham, it's just one, and he kept going, one, one, one. And so we got that there's different expressions of this through different traditions in the way that is so beautiful because it allows people of different proclivities to be able to connect deeply inside themselves that it didn't really matter and and that that came to the fore especially in these retreats that, that we did and, and and are still doing so um and ramdas was a psychologist so it was all about yeah. understanding how we become our roles and our identities and eventually it's about becoming nobody another film we made with ramdas about that but of course, you have to become a somebody before you can even think to go there, right? Yeah. Well, one thing that happened after this experience in Hiroshima was, um, in the, when was it in the 80s or 90s, systems thinking started mm. to be a hip thing in America? But now I think of systems thinking as interdependence. As the answer, I'm not an individual unit. I still am somebody, but I'm completely involved in a larger system. Mm. And that helped me when I was a Zen teacher because I knew that the Zen Sangha was a system. I was a wheel in the system, but I was just a wheel. And everything was working as a system. Mm. That has really helped me. And I feel it in my family with my sons. That when I took the mama bear identity out of the system, we started to communicate much, much better. And the love could flow more. So I, wherever I go now, I'm thinking system. I am part of interdependent world and i am not isolated and i am not a unit yeah and that came from this experience at mm. hiroshima yeah wow these are two powerful experiences right going to the camps and then going to hiroshima that's pretty amazing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. something else that uh of uh, i picked up and there's so many different uh themes in this in your book it's it's quite wonderful uh and you talk about how Zen practice did not offer sufficient instructions how to deal with painful psychological distress. And I think you could say that about any of these traditions. Spiritual bypass being a, uh, a bandied about term, but pretty right, right on. And you mm -hmm. talked about how um, you were told when you first were going to the Zendos, I guess, and start really uh, practicing, you were told to just let go of your emotional issues and sit silently together, which was very attractive for you. As you said, in many ways, for a person from a disturbed and violent fam family, it was heaven to be told to be quiet and unattached to people. But in other ways, it simply wasn't enough to address my whole person, including psychological needs. I think this is a tremendously important um, point and especially with uh, uh, I love the Tibetans and I've been with many lamas and gotten teachings and you know it's been wonderful to to have that opportunity and I Ramdas used to say this all the time and I agree with it their version of the truth reality their perspective is so diamond-like, uh, vajra-like, you would call it, incisive. And uh, it makes so much sense that it is easy to get entrapped in the mind of, of connecting with it in that way and forgetting 
everything below, forgetting the heart, forgetting going through, because sometimes it's very difficult to go through. Actually, people think, well, bhakti yoga, you know, that's just okay. Trungpa Rinpoche used to kid us back in the day. Oh, here's the light and lovers that are coming, Ramdas's people. (laughs) Hi, you know. And, and well, we... when you said bhakti a couple of, you know, 10 minutes ago, I was jealous <laughs> <laughs> because the heart is not, it's there in Japanese then. It, my uh, Kabiri Roshi was a very heartful man, mm. but it isn't emphasized. So it's very easy to get off kilter because the heart is not emphasized and i'm going to say it's a big part of the book actually that Mm. i didn't understand how to get my personal needs met because i was told there was no personal needs you just did the Mm. needs of the community you're a zen teacher you just do the needs of your students i didn't take care of myself and that didn't free me that did not free me not to take care of my personal needs And I'm just going to add the feminist thing in here, Mm. is all of these religions were made by men for men. And women, we don't have the, uh, there's a word for it, now I'm forgetting, but we have to take care of the kids. We have to birth the kids. We have to take care of the kids. Now, I know that all the gender stuff is changing now, but women have a automatic connection to the heart, to story, to emotions, letting your emotions be beautiful. And especially in Japanese Zen, it's very cut off from Mm. that. Yeah. So when I wanted to heal as a trauma survivor, Mm. I had to use several modalities to heal. I couldn't just do Buddhism because I needed psychotherapy, mm. I needed get off drugs, I needed uh, to learn how to communicate. So one of the appeals, my admonition from writing the book is, if you have a very disturbed emotional body, you need to do several modalities. And those modalities might be different. Like some people are doing LSD. It wasn't for me. But that might be a modality that you would use or psychotherapy or psychoanalytic uh, therapy. But I do think you have to heal on all the different levels of consciousness. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what really struck me. And, and I think that's something we talk about a lot, about how we use these traditions and these methodologies to really sidestep having to deal with our stuff. And you say that here. Uh, For a few decades, I used my obsession with concentration and meditation as another method to avoid facing my problems. I didn't realize this at the time. In many ways, meditation can also bring forth our unconscious issues. But meditation can be used as a substitute for an addiction and become another compulsive, intoxicating behavior. We just go to the mountaintop, be quiet, and pacify our inner voices. Um, What I thought was concentration was really just a repression of thought method, which didn't seem to help me in the long run. I might be calm at a session, but as soon as I got home, I was a wreck once again. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God. You know, I fortunately had, this is a whole longer story, and I've told it before on these podcasts, but I ended up having uh, Darsha, or being in the presence of uh, Kalu Rinpoche, great, great Lama from the last Mm -hmm. century. Mm -hmm. And uh, I happened to get into a room with him, and I'm talking, this is when I was in my early 20s, when I was meeting Neem Karoli Baba at that time. And... uh, I was with a couple of CB, uh, since I'm from Canada, I was at the Canadian High Commissioner's house and there was a couple of CB, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation reporters that were going to interview him. And I, they asked me to come and I went in the room and 
and they asked dumb questions uh, that he did not respond to whatsoever. And they said, well, I guess we're not getting anywhere. You want to ask a question? As soon as they, as soon as that happened, it was translated. I was going to ask a question. He sat up and did a laser on me. And I asked, and my question I'm okay meditating in the mountains, but I come into town here, into Delhi, and I've lost it. I can't. Do you have to stay in a cave and meditate? He said, absolutely not. And he told me the story of the seven siddhas of India back in the day that all became realized through work. Weaver, potter, and, and so on and so forth. And yeah. I, I, it completely turned me around from this naive point of view that is very prevalent that uh, we do we do these sessions or we do these 10-day uh, meditations uh, courses, you know, Vipassana things, we'll do 10 of them in a row and whatever, and that's going to solve our issues. And it is naive, shall we say. And Well, I think the hippie approach was very naive. And we were kind of all in a brain, you know, brain congealed state. And we were looking for escape. But uh, hopefully that can be changed now as we go into 21st century Buddhism. I, I gave a talk at the Soto Zen Buddhist Association. They wanted me to talk on women in Buddhism. And there was one point in the talk where I said, I'm afraid to say this, but I think we meditate too much. We should put all that energy into our ethical behavior, how we are talking, how are we relating to people, and not, it has to be balanced in the end, the three bases, wisdom, concentration, and ethics, that was Buddha's uh, admonition was those three bases have to be balanced. But I think American Buddhism has not spent enough time on ethics, which is right, uh, wise behavior, wise speech, and wise. It says wise livelihood, but I've changed it to wise finances <laughs> because I think then everybody can relate to it. Mm. You know, talking about meditation, this, this uh, teacher that we had, actually was assigned by Neem Karoli Baba. You, when he, he, he left to die the day before he did that, he said, you take care of the Westerners. And, and that's what happened. And he was, uh, he was, I had never, ex as I said before, experienced anybody who could go into these states of, of, of absorption uh -huh. like this. I mean, talk about someone who'd gone beyond meditate. He used to do this the way I wanted to go over to haagen and have an ice cream. This is, you know... <laughs> That's what he would be doing. And he said, uh, actually, it's in, the, in this film, Brilliant Disguise. He said, meditation is not, um, and I'm quoting loosely, is not a business. It's not about concentration. It's not a business of getting anywhere. Meditation is a way of life. And I think that is uh, the most important thing to, to understand that because we are so goal oriented in the West and we just make we make a mess of things we really do. Oh god. I agree. Um one other well, thing. Oh go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. No, go you go. Okay. I forgot already. <laughs> uh I I just think, you know, um this book is Untangling Karma and intimate Zen stories on healing trauma. Uh, but the untangling of karma, and we talk, and you talk about, and I, I have as well, you know, in terms of interviewing ma many great uh, teachers, uh, dismantling karma and used, using interrupting habit patterns. That is extraordinarily important. Uh, give us, uh, I mean, I have an idea of some of the things, but tell, okay, tell me what well, has really worked for you in being able to do that in a, right. in a way that it's, it's profoundly changed uh, your life. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was an addict 
and an alcoholic, so I went into a 12-step program. Mm. And steps four through nine in 12 steps is really about changing your habit patterns. So I got very involved in that through 12-step. And I kept saying, where is it in Buddhism? Where is it? It was a big search for me. And two Tibetan teachers, Pema Chodron, Mm. and who was the other guy? Uh, Ken McLeod. Oh, yeah. Those two Tibetan teachers really taught about interrupting your habit patterns. And I studied their, you know, their four things. You recognize your pattern. You get, you resonate with your higher consciousness. You are held by the universe. You do anything differently. Sometimes I have premeditated what I'm going to do differently. Like if I'm upset about being mom, I tonglen for all the moms in the world. You know, I had set things I did that interrupted my pattern. And the fourth one is you do it over and over and over. And Katagiri Roshi called that a vow. Hmm. So I taught that a lot at my Zen center, which is unusual. But that is one of the main ways that I've been working with my karmic patterns. And they can be interrupted. And that's through mindfulness. You have to be aware of the moment the pattern comes up. And if you're fast enough, you can interrupt it. If you're not fast enough, the pattern plays out. And it's very hard to interrupt the pattern when you're in the middle of the pattern. Like when I'm going to the refrigerator, it's easier to interrupt my overeating than mm-hmm. when I'm actually eating what chocolate or whatever I wanted. Then it's almost impossible to interrupt. So it's a mindfulness practice and you have to do it a lot. Mm. How's that? Good. That is something I would, uh, I've absolutely investigated and has been a big part of my practice, personal practice. Uh, and for many, many children years. has books on it and Shempa, she talks about Shempa, which is the anxiety of our patterns and how we have to interrupt them. I love the word interrupt. Yeah. But not that many people use it, but the Tibetans do. Yeah. And I would say, uh, and and this is certainly our tradition, and certainly what Neem Karoli Baba emphasized day to day to day, like um, Ramdas said, okay, can you give me a, a mantra, you know, for me to raise my kundalini, however he said that? And Maharaji would say, feed people. And Ramdas oh. would think, that is just awful. All my Buddhist friends are getting these beautiful esoteric teachings. He's telling me feed people. What kind of, you know, he was this cynical guy kind of thing. And he asked it again in a different way, how to get enlightened somehow. Right. And Maharaji said, love everyone and tell the truth. This this was so disappointing. And we are all so disappointed when we're not given this recipe that will uh, absolutely uh, mean we're going to get an A at school. You know, I mean, this is the well, way. Well, my that we... achievement drive, I have a, well, being Jewish, <laughs> I, I got into the achievement drive of the, of the Jews and I have a very strong achievement pride, and I applied it, speaking of kundalini yoga, and I went uh, session meditation after meditation and tried to push my energy around to open the chakra that I wanted open. And whenever I did that, I got sick mm. because that energy doesn't want to get pushed around by my sweet ego, my little ego or my achievement drive, that energy blossoms when it's the right time for it to blossom. And you can't push it around. So I really know what you're talking about, about being disappointed that I my body isn't doing exactly what the picture 
sets, the picture from what era, I don't even know. Yeah. Actually, this is, you know, I'm a quilter. No. And this is a picture. So my it was, my quilt is on the cover of the book. That's my quilt. And this is the an mm. illustration of my heart opening mm. that happened two summers ago. And I tried for 50 years to get my heart to open kundalini-wise, you know, the energy. Mm. And it didn't happen until my love actually did soften and mm. my love did open and I and my forgiveness did happen and then the energy opened mm. my heart yeah so you can't push it around folks no and the reality <laughs> is as you say in the book through a, a torn open heart which happened all of us have this experience we all have had trauma one way or the other suffering and if we realize that torn open heart with that, it's like Leonard Cohn, right? The crack is how the light gets in, crack in the heart. I, Leonard is from Montreal too. He's my uh -huh. my guru, my upa guru. Uh, through this torn open heart, you can touch the larger perspective of life, you say. Feel the suffering of all beings and find Buddha's heart within yourself. And that is the only truth and it's the only thing we we know from all of our experiences with this great being and and subsequently with ramdas over all these years well one thing that happened for me is i had uh, my vessel broke and i had a lot of split off broken parts and buddhism didn't necessarily help me bring in or even realize my split-off parts. Mm. So part of the work of the book was gathering all the parts of myself. Sometimes I said it was like a body scan for hate. It was a hate scan, a resentment scan, like scanning my body. Where am I still hating? You know, and then exploring, going into that. And saying, I don't, that is not a spiritually evolved person, doesn't have those parts where they still hate. Mm. And uh, so I, I've worked, uh, again, I don't want to, my intention is to gather up all these parts and through love, through forgiveness, let them come back together. And I, I just want to talk about. Kintsugi, is that okay? So Kintsugi is a Japanese craft where they take broken pottery, they glue them back together and put gold, porcelain, or silver in the cracks. And here's an image of a Kintsugi wow. pot. And many people say, and I kind of agree, that the Kintsugi pot is more beautiful than the original mm, pot. Mm, well. And that's how I feel about myself. I feel like over the 50 years of doing all this work, I found all my parts, I glued them back together, and I feel that really try uh, my intention to develop love is the gold that holds it together. Mm. And I say my intention to develop love because when you come from a family like ours, a violent, abusive family, you don't know what love is. I didn't know. I should say I don't, didn't know what love is. I didn't know how to live a life with gentleness and softness. And I have had to cultivate it through my spiritual life, through Buddha's heart, through Tonglen, through all the practices, I've had to cultivate a feeling of uh, letting go, not being in control, softness, loving, unconditional. Uh, what does unconditional love mean? It means I'm not trying to change the other person. I just love them. And it's taken me 50 years to have a taste 
of that kind of love. And I'm applying it to myself. Mm. Beautifully said. I'm in total agreement. Absolutely. <laughs> Great to meet you, Judith. Wonderful. And yeah, the book is wonderful. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank yeah, you so much. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and everybody, of course, uh, when you go to uh, Mind Rolling, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Mind Rolling, and you will find this episode, as well as links to pick up Judith's book and connect with her. And um, just so happy, again, to, I mean, it's, it's such an important uh, subject. When I saw Untangling Karma, it instantly attracted me. I had no idea what I was getting into, Judith, in terms uh. of, of just the pouring out of, of uh, your, um, your life in a way that is set such a great example. It, it, it triggered all this stuff in here, especially around my dad, because I think we had very common experience there with our fathers. Well, some people can read through the book cover to cover and love it and don't want to put it down and other people get triggered and they have to stop or slow down or go back and feel what they're feeling mm. and i say that's great you don't have to read it you can put it down it's not intended to trigger people but it is intended to show that you can heal yeah yeah you can that's heal a, that's it that's it right there. Thank you again, Judith Ragir. And this is Mind Rolling. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and find all of the wonderful podcasts that we have there. And we shall see you next week. 